This morning, uh, we're going to close out our series on the Apostles' Creed. So we'll be in a, a few places in the Bible today, three places, Isaiah, 1 Corinthians, and Revelation. Um, I, this morning, I woke up and promptly spent a uh, couple hours in the bathroom rec- uh, wrestling with the virus that my daughter gave me. So... I don't know how long I've got up here. If I run, get out of my way. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Appropriately, the, uh, the focus of the, the creed at the end is the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. May it come quickly. Um, Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a, rich, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces." And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Finally, Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it. 
nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful, we are thankful that in you is the light of our hope that cannot be extinguished. We pray that our ears would be attentive to you and that our eyes would be open. We pray that you would make our hearts soft. God, we pray that we would hear the word of hope in your gospel, that our hearts would be inflamed with love, a love that conquers death. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Um, This morning, as I tried to wrestle with my guts, feeling like they were being ripped out of my body, um, I, I, had to, uh, I had to breathe through the pain and tell myself, I'm not going to die. This, this is going to be over. Um, I'm going to be better soon. I need to just calm down. But it was a lie to some degree. Because the truth is, I am going to die. And you are too. Merry Sunday. We're all going to die. That is, that is the truth of it. And it is the truth that is part of every human story. Um, most of us, for the first third half of our lives, we, we can keep that truth somewhere in the closet of our mind. Um, unless you come into horrible confrontation, a tragic reminder that the monster in the closet is going to come out. Um, But as we turn the corner of our lives and the years pile up behind us, death becomes a much clearer uh, figure on the horizon. And the reality is that it's in those times when you're reckoning with the reality of your death that you're doing the business of of being human and you're feeling the limits of your own mortality because for all of us, there are clear bookends. There is the day that you are born and the day that you will die. And the Bible, just like all of the rest of human history and all the rest of human philosophy and thought, wrestles with, what is my life worth? 
if death presses in and I know everything will be over. And there is, there is business to be done there. How, how do I make the most of my days knowing that my days are fleeting? That's the question of the book of Ecclesiastes. If everything is, is passing away like a vapor, fleeing through our fingers, how does anything have any sort of meaning? But there is also this moment when you're confronting death, when you are on the edge of a loved one's grave, when you're at their bedside, when they breathe their last, and you feel inside of you this thing that is um, repulsed, that this is a, such a common experience that you watch a loved one die, and you say, they're, they're gone, that's their body, but that's not them. And you're left with the physical remnant of their person. But you say, this is not who they are. And that kind of confrontation, something deep inside of us says, is not right. It is not right that the person that I love has been separated from their body. There shouldn't be these disassembled parts to who they are. They should be together, one person. They should be alive. And we have to be clear as Christians that that impulse, that instinct, is correct. That is not a failure or an inability to grasp with reality it is, it is a signpost of the deepest way that reality was meant to be real. That we are supposed to stand at the graveside and say, this is not natural. This is not good. And so our weeping is justified. The Bible does not say, don't weep at death. The Bible is very clear that, that death is lament-worthy and that we should lament it. But the, the big picture of the story of the Bible is that God never intended for death to be woven in to the story like this for His people, and also that God never has intended to let death remain part of the story. God intended that His people would live in harmony with Him and in the bounty and fullness of the goodness of creation. And it is only the, the wedge of sin that chops life away, chops us away from the source of life, cutting us off at the root from that which keeps us alive. In the Garden of Eden, the image is that the people would be able to feast from the tree of life. And when sin enters into the garden... They are cut off from the tree of life. They're sent out of the garden, meaning that death now is part of the human story. But before they're sent out, God tells them that he will one day crush the usurper. He'll crush the tyrant who has inserted himself into the story, and he will undo what has been done that day. And the whole fullness of the, the story of the Bible is God fulfilling what he prophesied himself in Genesis chapter 3, that he would crush the serpent and every trace of the serpent. 
the rest of the Bible is just an explanation of how that would happen. And we hear this repeated theme in, in the past, in the prophet Isaiah, and we hear it in Paul's writing to the Corinthians in the epistle of the first Corinthians, and we hear it in John's vision in the book of Revelation, this continued theme that God will not leave the world as it is. That God will actually uh, remove all vestiges of this horrible insertion that is sin and death. Unfortunately, um, Christians through the ages have been overly influenced by the world around us that has said that either all that matters is your body or that all that matters is the part of you that is not your body. And we see the influence of both streams of thought in our own day. Very much many people in our culture live as if the only thing that matters is your bodily reality, your bodily feeling. And so you should just be captive to whatever your body demands. Capitulate to the natural sentencing of your body as it moves through time. But we also see the evidence that people are largely saying, I can be whatever I choose to be, regardless of what my body says. And we see it in all kinds of arenas, in sexuality and gender and lots of other things, vocation. I am the self-determiner, and it doesn't actually matter what my body tells me. I can be the one who decides. And Christians throughout the ages have vacillated between these two temptations, usually falling prey to the temptation to believe that all that really matters is the part of me that's not my body. That what God really wants for me is to escape my body, to escape this world. That is Greek philosophy through the ages. And that is why when the church came and, and preached to the Greeks in the book of Acts, and they talked about the resurrection of Jesus, they said, this is the stupidest thing we've ever heard. We're, we're on board with the Jesus thing until you talk about resurrection. That makes no sense. And the reaction was not, it was nice talking to you, have a good day. It was, we want to kill you because this is so stupid and harmful and offensive. And the church over the centuries has largely focused on the freedom that you will get when you die. The relief that you get from suffering. Which of course is, is true. There is some truth there. We, many of us know people who have been racked by pain and suffering and disease. And at the moment of their death, we feel a sense of relief from the, for them. Which is true. But the vision that God has for people and for the world is not just that moment of relief. A lot of times when I deal with students who come into my Bible class and we have this conversation about what the Bible said, what's heaven going to be like, what is it like when you die, they're focused very much on that moment when you die. And what God most wants for me is in that moment when you die, where do I go? But the witness of the biblical text is that God spends very little time talking about that. Very little time 
discussing what happens when you die. You can check me on that. You can go online. You can use uh, online biblical word search. Search it out. It doesn't talk very much about that. It's largely mysterious. But what the Bible will focus on is the fulfillment of God's plan. And the fulfillment of God's plan does not arrive the moment that you die. The fullness of God's plan arrives at the fulfillment of history. Yes, the Christian is invited to take comfort and to take peace from the the very moment that you are separated from your body, you are present with the Lord. Paul is clear in his offer of that hope. But it is not the bulk of what the Bible will say. The Bible will go on to focus in the moment at the fulfillment of history when, as Paul says, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. The end of all things, the thing for which, to which God is moving, is this moment the resurrection of the body. God does not create something in Genesis that He has chosen at some point in the middle of the Bible to discard forever. He creates something in Genesis and chooses to redeem it and to fulfill it and to make it, dare we say, even better in spite of the power of sin and death. So the prophets will point us forward. Paul will point us forward, not just in the moment that you and I will die, but the moment that then we will be raised again. The, the deepest hope in Jesus is not for life after death. It is, as N.T. Wright talks about, life after life after death. The thing that we are moving towards, that we are aiming towards, is resurrection. And so when Christians face the specter, the reality of death that is still very much real, we view the other side of death as a pause in the story rather than the fulfillment of our hope. Because that moment when you stand at the graveside, the moment when you are holding the hand of the loved one, and you are saying, it should not be so. That my, my loved one is separated, body and spirit. You are right. And God will heal that thing. There will be a day, our Christian hope confesses, that we will see our loved ones fully alive, not just in spirit, meeting together in the clouds somewhere, but bodily on the earth together. And our hope as people today who struggle with sickness and pain and sorrow and depression and anxiety that seems woven into our bones is that for ourselves as well, there is one day coming when we can once again walk 
up and down stairs without pain or go to bed at night and not have to be oppressed by the weight of all of our existential dread. Or we can wake up in the morning and go to church without having to spend several hours in the bathroom wondering if this is the end. For us today, there is hope, not just for those who are dying or are dead, but for ourselves, all the things, the ailments, the weaknesses, the things that beset us and bring suffering and heartache to us, big and small, we still have this forward-looking hope for ourselves. This is not the end of the story. And all our hopes the whole hopes of the Bible ultimately come to rest on one person's shoulders. The whole of biblical hope is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. We do not look forward to a resurrection. We do not look forward to life after life after death because it sounds nice and that's what we would like. Frankly, I'm not that positive or hopeful of a person. If all I set my hopes on was the thing that I really wish would happen, I couldn't dream that big. But all of our forward-looking hope is based on past event. The person of Jesus Christ, who himself embraced and embodied all of our suffering and even our death and even our grave and even, as we talked about before, our descent into the dead, Jesus is the one who walked on the other side of it. So our hopes are concrete. Our hopes are based not on just wishful thinking, but on something that has already happened. It is Jesus' resurrection as an event in history, not a magical, myth-making illusion, but as an event that happened that allows us to look forward with confidence and hope. And we're not people who pretend that death doesn't sting. We, of all people, should be people who feel free to vent and lament and weep and to wail because we are people who can honestly confess it should not be so. And yet it is. We are the people who hear the angel speaking to John saying these words are important and meant for you to hear the words for Jesus saying, I'm coming quickly. And we are the people on the edge of our seat saying, would you please come quicker? There is an appropriate amount of anticipation and expectation and heartache the people of God. This people, we are not encouraged to, to delude ourselves or to put a smile on our face and pretend like everything is fine. We're, we're supposed to look at the graves, to look at the evil, to look at the darkness, to name it for what it is, and to speak the name of Jesus as the lifeline of hope that carries through the grave. When we come to a, a Christian's funeral, 
in our, in our book of worship, in our denomination, pastors are given very few instructions. But one of the predominant instructions, the clearest instruction, a Christian's funeral is about the gospel. It is, it is not mostly about talking about how good the person was that died. It is a moment to preach the gospel. Because it is ultimately Jesus who has and holds all of our hope. It is Jesus who says, I am the resurrection and the life. And it is upon him that we cast all of our sorrow and all of our hope. If today you have, you have struggled under the weight of your mortality, the frailty of your body, you are invited to confess with the creed that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And it, it doesn't mean that you pretend that your body is not frail or that you do not weep. We do weep. But as Paul says, we don't weep as those who have no hope. If you, if you are plagued by the moments that you have seen the horrible, vicious reality of seeing a loved one torn apart into parts, physical and spiritual, and have felt the horror of saying it should not be so, you're invited to confess with the whole church. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. If you carry the weight of your fragile humanity, you're invited to see and to hear Jesus this morning. You do not have to carry that alone. In fact, Jesus presents himself as a good shepherd. He presents himself as the resurrection and the life who has already scooped you up and carried you into his grave with himself so that when he was resurrected, he would carry all of your frailty and your hopes with him. Your hope this morning is sure, not because you just want something really good, but because of what Jesus has already done. Jesus did not fail in his mission God the Father will not fail in his promises that he gave in the garden. And God will surely crush the head of the serpent, wipe every tear from your eye, swallow death and the grave, and he will turn on the lights forever. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that this morning you would speak to your people. You have spoken in your word. I pray that by your spirit, you will make that word present and personal to us. Father, I know that all of us have to face the reality of the limits of our lives, how they fly by us, how we 
carry in our bodies the marks of the limits of this time. And Father, I pray that this morning you would preach the good news to our hearts that you have not abandoned us, you have not abandoned the world that you have made, and that death does not get to have the last word for the people of God. But it is rather your own resurrection voice that calls us from the grave. Father, I pray that you would comfort those who weep. I pray, Father, that you would comfort those who suffer. And Father, we look to your own marked body to see how seriously you take the horrors of death and suffering. Jesus, I pray that you would help us. Pray that you would help us to be a people appropriately grateful for the good world in which we live, that appropriately celebrate and enjoy this good world, but also are on the edge of our seats, anticipating what is to come. Help us not to be deluded, to be focused on what Paul says is perishable and passing away, but instead fix our hearts on you that we are invited into the life imperishable. We thank you that even our bodies are not exempt from your work, Lord God. Let our hopes rest in you, Lord Jesus. Let all our hopes rest in you that we might take comfort from your sure grip the assurance that you will never fail. I thank you, Jesus. Amen.